And by the way, there's so many things I want to tell you about Easter this morning. There's so many things. And then, um, of course, each year, I only get to tell you one thing. Uh, But real quick, I want to tell you two things about Easter. Number one, Easter is special to us because our hero, the hero of the Christian faith, is not in the grave. The Christian faith doesn't have a hero where you could dig up some bones and you have to look at some tablets to read what they wrote and then say, isn't this teaching terrific? We should submit and learn and follow this teaching. And there's so many implications to that. But the uniqueness of the Christian faith, in large part, if this is, maybe this Christian faith is new to you, especially um, if you are relatively new to Jesus, the uniqueness of the Christian faith, what makes you, the Christian faith separate, distinct, from all other faiths is that the hero of our faith is not laying in a grave. Secondly, secondly, the other thing I want to tell you about Easter that's special for us um, every day is that not only is our hero not in the grave, but Easter means our death, our final resting place is not a final resting place. Our death is not final because our hero is not dead. And um, there's, I hope you have time today because I want to tell you about that. I want to give you, um, I want to give you a picture, if I could, of some things that I think are going to be helpful. And I know that when you arrive on Easter, perhaps there's a lot of chaos to get here. Perhaps there's tension to get here. Perhaps there's a little bit of bickering and tension about what time you were supposed to leave and who's to blame for all that. But more importantly, there are people who gather together among churches like ours and also who tune in from the live stream to churches like ours, and they don't feel that excited about a holiday because of a lot of reasons, not the least of which is because of a sense of guilt and shame. And guilt and shame is like a dark cloud that hovers over you, and it literally confuses and muddies up your view on every aspect of life. If you carry guilt and shame, it shows up in so many different ways, right? The constant thinking, did I do something wrong? And it affects us in so many different ways. There's so many aspects of the way in which we feel guilty. I didn't do something I should have done. I did something that I shouldn't have done. Why did I say that? How about the guilt of why didn't I say that? Anybody have that syndrome? You have the perfect moment to drop a verbal bomb on somebody, but it doesn't come to you, and you get the mutes. You ever had the mutes? It's like, this is the time. I'm going to finally say this thing, and this is the zinger that I've always wanted to say, and bam, you're just stricken with the mutes. You got that? You following me on that one? Some of you can't respond because you have it. So, I mean, we'll get there. But you just, and then you have guilt for what you should have said, but you didn't say. And there's so many other kinds of guilt. I've talked to moms who have mom guilt. They think to themselves, I mean, my my career is going so well, but then I start getting guilty that I should be spending more hours at home. And then you talk to some moms who say, my family is going so well, but sometimes I feel guilty. I should should, um, spend more hours working to bring in some money. Dads who feel guilty about their time that they should be spending at work or should be spending at home, should be spending with their kids, and they're not. Food guilt. Anybody have food guilt? 
We should be done with food guilt, right? But there's such a steep price to pay when you get rid of the food guilt. There's Christian guilt. I don't pray enough. I don't pray the right way. I wish I prayed without falling asleep. I must not be praying the right way because nothing ever seems to really happen. That kind of guilt. Some of you have the guilt of losing your version Bible streak. You feel like it's hard to go on after getting back to one. The Christian guilt of I should be at Sunday services more, but I find myself making all kinds of excuses and I can't. Now I've been away so long, I can't bear the guilt of going back. And somebody says, where have you been? I missed you. I thought you moved. And you're thinking, I wish I did. I should have. Honestly, it's better than facing you. Christian guilt, I should serve more. I'm serving too much. It's a lot of pressure. And then there's nothing like Instagram guilt. Anybody get Instagram guilt? Your whole life is fine. You're content with everything until you start looking at other people's lives on Instagram. Then you're like, my life is the worst. I'm the worst mom, the worst dad. I'm the worst business owner. I'm the worst. I, am, I have the ugliest body on the planet. Some people with Instagram guilt even believe in their own baking and cooking until they see someone's baking and cooking Instagram feed. Then they're like, it's just, why do I feed the slop to my people? Why do I do this? There's so many different kinds of guilt. Then there's just general guilt. I have let so many people down. I wish I didn't leave so many people down. How do I stop letting people down? I've let myself down. I'm surprised anybody is sticking with me. I'm guilty for saying yes. I'm guilty for saying no. Some of you um, are familiar with that guilt, but it's not a surface guilt that I'm describing. It's a deeper guilt. It's it's a guilt that causes you a lot of distress related to really being who you are, saying what you feel, and connecting with people in truth. And that guilt has kind of chased you into a dark part of your life. And that guilt is important because it's not going to go away and that cloud's not going to pass overhead and you aren't going to be free, according to the Christian faith, until you look at that guilt, you face that guilt, and you tell that guilt some truth. We're going to look at that truth today. And Easter gives us some truth to share with our guilt that is life-changing. And it's going to start by taking a look at what we see in Luke chapter 23, one of the Gospels, and it's describing the crucifixion scene, which we leaned into on Friday night at Good Friday. And it's an important part of the story because before we get to the good news of Resurrection Day, we have the bad news of Crucifixion Day. And, by the way, the worse the bad news is, the gooder the good news is, right? The good news gets better as the bad news gets worse. And when you look at the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23, it's one of the the fascinating things you'll notice from the very, very, if you look from a very high range up, one of the things that you'll notice is that Jesus isn't wearing a royal crown, he's wearing a crown of thorns. And Jesus, the king, isn't surrounded by servants, he's surrounded by thieves, 
And from a long range up, you get to see that Jesus is not sitting on a throne where he belongs. He's hanging on a cross. Execution. The worst kind of execution. The most horrific kind. But it helps us begin to get a clear picture about Jesus' death and his resurrection and what it means. And it means that instead of getting the death we deserve, God makes us alive. We start with the execution. Two men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. So real quick, going to test your math. How many people getting executed by crucifixion? Three. You will not believe this. Other churches, they say two. You guys nailed it. You guys nailed it. Three executions. Two men, one on one side of Jesus, one on the other. Jesus is in the middle, being executed in the middle, and the execution is horrific. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. It's important we don't skip this. We're going to slow down here and talk about crucifixion because crucifixion is an important part of what Jesus faces. It is reserved. This kind of execution is reserved for the worst kind of criminals, the most detested, the most abhorrent. It is the, uh, the people who are the slimiest underbelly of the culture get charged and then they get tried. Uh, they get tried and then charged and then they get executed by the cross. It's for soldiers who commit treason. It's reserved for slaves who have no status. It's the most horrific kind of death that someone could die. There's a long description you can find about what Roman crucifixion was like. You can Google that and find it. In short, it is a horrific experience emotionally, spiritually, and physically. First comes the scourging. It becomes, comes the whipping with leather straps with pieces of glass in the leather. And it's intended to pull flesh off the body. And the scourging lasts long enough and there's enough blood that's lost that the body, the person starts to approach a level of shock. And the scourging doesn't stop until there's enough blood loss, until they are in that state of shock. Then when they finally get nailed to the cross, there's seven-inch spikes that go in here in between some bones that finally get secured up on the cross and then in the ankle bone. and, And someone is then hanging, asphyxiating on the cross, but not dead. And the only relief they get from that asphyxiation is to stand up so that they can let themselves breathe. And sometimes, just out of mercy, their legs get broken. After three or four days of suffocating, their legs get broken so they can no longer stand up and breathe. Their legs uh, um, get broken so they actually finish the suffocation. And that's intense. I'm giving you the family-friendly version, even though we said... Goodbye to our kids. That's our family-friendly version. It's horrific, horrific what Jesus experienced. Could take days to die, up to four days, some have reported, uh, before their legs were broken so that they could die. We're not sure. We're not really sure what these two other men did. Um, The criminals that are on one side on his right and criminals that are on his left, we're not sure exactly what those criminals did did. But we know that they did, they committed the worst crimes in the culture. We know that these aren't, um, 
these aren't lightweight criminals. And as people gathered, they mocked Jesus, and then they spit on Jesus because a part of the execution was to bring shame and humiliation. You can imagine him um, hanging there, partially, partly clothed. Uh, Most of his clothes had been gambled for in a mock gambling routine or ritual. And Jesus, of course, now is going to say something about the soldiers who are killing him, mocking him, shaming him. And what does Jesus say? Some of you have been around the Christian faith. You know what he says. And there's a lot of things that he could have said. You've got um, this unbelievably harsh and horrible, one-sided, unjust. By the way, I never, I never like to forget this. It is guilty soldiers who are mocking, shaming, and crucifying an innocent man. I never, I never like to forget that. The irony is shocking, right? And so Jesus, of course, there's a lot of things that Jesus could have said. And I like to read the Bible creatively and inject some of the things I probably would have liked to have said myself if it were me, right? But Jesus says something that is Another reason why I am willing to submit my heart and life to Jesus because Jesus doesn't say, you will one day get what you deserve. I mean, that, I like that. That's a good line, right? Just like, you just wait for it. Anybody have a, a, a parent who was like that? Like when you were a bad kid and your parent was like, you are naughty now, but wait till your, wait till your mother or father gets home. Anybody have one like that? Wait till you get what you deserve. Clearly, they weren't Jesus. I mean, you just got that clear as could be. So Jesus, here's what Jesus says. He doesn't talk to the men, doesn't talk to the authorities. He doesn't mumble to himself. He talks to his Father in heaven who he had been communing with his entire life. And he says, Father, I ask that you forgive them because these dopey soldiers, he didn't say that, these soldiers do not know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And in an incredible act of mercy, Jesus withholds from them what they deserve. It's amazing how many things that Jesus didn't say. And one of the things that he didn't say that is life-changing is, you will get what you deserve. And if you've walked in here today or you're tuning in through the live stream and you're carrying with you dark clouds of guilt and shame, you ultimately have the sense of needing or you're going to get something that you deserve to kind of acknowledge your own failure or your own flaws. One of the criminals who hung there next to Jesus insulted him. That was his response. One of the criminals insulted him and belittled him. And he said things like, uh, aren't you the master? Aren't you supposedly the king of the Jews? You're the Messiah. Why don't you save yourself? And then he throws this in there, and us too. Why don't you do it? Arrogantly, pridefully, no fear of God, no submission, no humble repentance, no contrition, no confession. Just point fingers and arrogantly accuse. Arrogantly mock and scorn. And in his heart, he does not believe he needs 
a savior or a rescuer like Jesus in his heart. Now, the other criminal, he's got a different take on it. The other criminal, he says this. He says, we are punished justly. I mean, can you imagine, by the way, they're being crucified, they're having a conversation, right? That's hard to picture, but he's, he, imagine like, I don't know, I'm not going to do that. So he says somehow he's communicating to the other criminal on the other side of Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how you get your head around. It doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. He says we are punished justly for, for we are getting what our, de- what our deeds, help me with this, what word's next? Deserve. Help me with it, what word? Deserve. We're getting what we deserve, knucklehead. We're getting what we deserve. But this man in between us hasn't done anything wrong. It's also the very same thing that Pilate said. I can't find any guilt in this guy. It's also what Herod said. I can't find any guilt in this guy. He was wrongly accused, self-righteously executed. So that's what he says. The other criminal says, help me, Jesus. Eventually, he's going to have this great line. Let me give you some lines here, and if you guys have been around long enough, you could probably finish these sentences for me, right? So help me with this one. What comes around? This is the, um, this is the group participation time, so let it fly, okay? What comes around goes around. I got another one for you. You ready? Um, your past will come back to really good. You make your bed, you got to... We all know these phrases. You know what they mean? That in our culture, in our society, we know what it sounds like to say to someone or to tell ourselves, you are going to get what you deserve. We get that. That's our thing. We're quite capable. All of them are different ways of saying it. Part of me really does like when somebody gets what they deserve. Is there anything more gratifying than having somebody race by you on the highway when you are following the law of the land and a few miles later, you finished my sentence, what happened? They got pulled over. Who said they're in a rollover crash? That was just, that's unbelievable. I mean, really, shame, shame. Wearing a seatbelt, right, you're not ugly. You know, I, I, um, I have this very, I don't know what it is. I think it, there's in my family, I think we have like this lineage of, it's a bit of a strange sense of humor. Um, I don't know if it's strange. Actually, I meet more and more people who really find it funny when someone else is experiencing misfortune. And I don't mean like they're going broke. I mean like they, they fall and face plant. You know what I mean? And there's, I found this video channel that's about karma. And it's a video of people who are doing something who think they're going to get away with it and then karma slaps them in the mouth. And one of my favorites, this is, um, one of my favorites is this hidden, it's like a security camera taking security footage outside of a school and there is the proverbial oversized bully and you can see that he's bullying a skinny kid with a backpack. Now, how many of you remember being the skinny kid with the backpack, right? I'm going to tell you a story that is going to thrill your bones, right down to your bones. So in this video, it's very, very short, but you could see 
that this skinny kid is familiar with the bully because it seems natural and normal that they were having this encounter. He's got a little, he's got a backpack on that literally looks bigger than him, and he's trying to get by the bully, and the bully's blocking his way, and you can see the bully shoving him. If it was a cartoon, he'd have him upside down, he'd shake out his lunch money, you know. But this bully is bullying him, and, and the kid, to his credit, is trying to avoid it. He tries to go around, he tries to go through, and the bully's getting in his way, he starts shoving him. And as you're watching this video, you're like, oh, I can't believe this. Now, do we all agree, by the way, we don't want legitimately bad things to happen to the bully. He's in trouble, he needs help, right? He needs help. I don't condone what, this, what happened in this video, but it was deeply gratifying. <laughs> do you know what this little skinny guy does? Takes his backpack off. Bruh, we got ourselves an MMA fighter. This kid is an MMA fighting machine and spins the bully into a knot, puts him on the ground, rear naked chokes him. And I'm watching this thing going, this is my favorite video of all time, of all time. And he could have done whatever he wanted to with him. He simply gets off the bully, leaves him in his puddle of his own tears and picks up his backpack and walks on. And I imagine that bully found someone else to pick on. But there is something gratifying about watching somebody get slapped with karma and get something that they didn't deserve. This is only a good life philosophy, and it's only gratifying. I think we could admit this when it happens to someone else, number one. And number two, in the end, it isn't true for when we stand before God. Because when we stand before God, one of the things that some of us are going to hope, some of us are going to have confidence, but some of us are going to hope is that we don't get what we deserve. Or we're going to work up a resume while we're on earth that, bring, that we can present to God and say, I actually am here for what I deserve because I was a really good person, relatively speaking. And that's a whole other sermon for another time. Then he said, this is the criminal now who didn't get what he deserves. He said, he said we are getting what we d- our d- deeds deserve. Then the criminal says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Another version says, remember me when you enter where? Someone know paradise. Today, uh, 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 when, you, when you enter your kingdom, would you please not forget about me? I was the one who was saying, leave you alone. I was the one who was saying, we're getting what we deserve, but you are innocent. And what did Jesus not say to this guy? He did not say, you know what? I'm not going to remember you because I never liked you anyway. He's not going to say to this particular man, you know what, you and your friend over there are going to need some shorts where you're going because it's hot. He did not say to the criminal, well, you know the saying, what goes around, he didn't say it. He didn't say you're going to get what you deserve either. It's you're not even going to get what everyone wants for everyone else. You're not going to get justice. You're not going to get what you deserve. He didn't say, sorry, man, it's too little, too late. That's what I would be worried about. Like, here we are. We're at the end. It's probably going to be too little, too late. And here's the thing. The thief couldn't do anything to change his eternity. He couldn't do anything to change his status with Jesus. He couldn't do it. I mean, he could not sign up for church. He's getting nailed on a cross. 
He could not serve the poor. His hands have stakes in them. He could not perform any of the good works. He could not turn over a new, light, a new leaf because he was withering to death on the cross. There's no more new leaf. I'll start over. I'm going to start again. I got a fresh start. This is his last day to live. So what did Jesus say? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today, today, this day, not tomorrow, not the next day, not in a future life when you get reincarnated and you come back as a butterfly and you do good things as, a, um, as an emotional support butterfly, and if you do enough, then eventually, no, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Something happened. Something happened and it had nothing to do with the criminal's work, nothing to do with the criminal's performance, nothing to do with the criminal's behavior. It's going to happen. Instead, by the way, he was guilty. He deserved to be alone in his grave. But instead, Jesus said, you're not going to be alone in a grave. You're going to be with me in paradise. And he makes an incredible promise. Here's why. This is in Psalms. We're reminded of this. The psalmist says, this is what I've learned of God. The psalmist is writing a poem. He's writing a song, and he's singing this song, and he's saying, here's what I've learned of the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What I've learned is that he does not punish us for all our sins. He does not. Which word is highlighted here? I didn't want you to miss it. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. By the way, that's called mercy. When you don't get the punishment you deserve, it's being withheld. That's mercy. When you get that which you don't deserve, the good things, or um, God would call them spiritual blessings, that's called grace. One of the reasons why that... Um, bully video resonates with me because is because when I was 12 years old, um, I was getting a good dose of bullying in my neighborhood. Well, let me tell you where I drew the line. 12 years old and I was being bullied by a 10-year-old who stopped my bike. And I had the best BMX bike, I mean, that Walmart could, I mean, sold. This 10-year-old stops my bike. I'm trying to dodge him, stops my bike. Eventually, we end up on a foot race and the foot race ends between two trailers in casual estates, our neighborhood. He's in one end of the kind of the alleyway between the trailers. I'm in the other, um, the other end. Now, for a picture here, picture a Western duel. We're facing off. He's, hurt, he's insulting me with all kinds of horrible words that I, I, I'm not sure how a 10-year-old would know, but he's letting me have it verbally. And I can't retaliate verbally because in my house, if I said the word fart, I get grounded. So I don't have any words. I, don't have any, I can't give them anything. But I'm good with baseball. There's rocks nearby. I pick up a rock, and I let a rock fly like a Hail Mary, like, God, if you're in this, let it. Uh-oh. Rock hits him, and it hits him in a pre-existing plastic surgery condition in his eye. It sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds like, Pastor Dan, you tell some stories. Some are real. This one cannot be. There's no way. Hits him in the eye that had plastic surgery on it. Breaks open immediately. His whole face is gushing with blood like I MMA'd him. 
And I thought to myself, now, now what do I do? And I ran like the wind, ran like the wind, and I disappeared right up near my front door of my house, but over a fence in and around a barricaded area and just thought, this is probably the safest place I can be. And within minutes, I hear bam, 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 bam. And his entire extended family is on my front porch, pounding on the, pounding on the door. And I remember, I remember hearing, I swear I could hear, not just feel, but I could hear my heart pounding. Thinking to myself, this could be it. If they hear me, this family could drag me this, this, this um, family could very much execute a good old-fashioned beatdown of this to get a little bit of revenge. And, and I think about that often. I think about what could have happened. The family was a well-known family, and they were well-known for getting some revenge around the neighborhood. So I picked my face up, and I said, all of you, Get off my porch. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Did you think that was? I didn't do that. I hid. Eventually, they called the cops. My parents, who are like grandparents, are having this conversation. We don't know where Danny is. We have not seen Danny. If we ever see Danny again, we will turn him into the police. That day came and went. I always remember that as a day where I, if I would have gotten what I deserved that day, if I technically would have been the source of the vengeance of these people, that wouldn't even compare if one day we're standing before God and the vengeance of the Creator is executed where we just get what we deserve. It's a game changer. But that's why Easter is so beautiful because it leads us to something that all of us are going to have to learn to enjoy. God doesn't stop with just getting us off the hook. God doesn't stop with just giving us a firm talking to. God doesn't stop with just forgiving us. He doesn't just stop with changing us. What more could he do by his grace? We deserve wrath, but instead of just letting us off the hook, God makes us alive. He reverses death, and he brings us to life. We deserve death, but he doesn't um, bring that death. Instead, we have a divinely planned, divinely executed, life-saving rescue plan that God engages in. He makes us alive with Christ. A divinely planned reversal that really only God could implement and execute. Let's do some fun with numbers. Now, take a deep breath. I have a long list, okay? Um, Now, this is very, very tricky because there is a lot of number play with the Bible that is literally just hocus pocus. Then there are some numbers that have some significance in the Bible. God uses some numbers to bring some symbolism and significance, maybe some metaphor numbers. I mean, some of you might be familiar with, right, one is the number signifying unity or, the, or, or, or God. Then you've got four, which indicates the earth. Then you've got other numbers like uh, five, which is the grace number. And then the seven number, some of you familiar with that, the perfection number, right, that's God's number. Then you've got other numbers. There's a six number, which means weakness or flesh or the devil, and that's where the, the kind of that 
um, occult number comes from. Then you've got the number eight, which is new beginnings, and 40. The number 40 is testing and trial. But there's a number I want to point out today and, and, and kind of list some significant things because there is some significance in the number, in the way that it shapes up, and it's the number three. And three in the Bible is the number of wholeness or completeness. Wholeness and completeness. Now, would you do me a favor? I get nervous when I do things like this because, because of the hocus-pocus of some number stuff, right? Anybody remember 88 reasons that Jesus is coming back when? 1988. See the hocus-pocus? Then there was like 88 Bible reasons, and then there's, you know. Anyway, um, so there are, but there are some significant numbers. So let's talk about the number three. Um, the number three is super important. Um, God is the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, He's three. We human beings are triune in nature, body, soul, and spirit. God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He is all three of those plus more, but those are the three uh, huge ones. God revealed Himself as the God who was and is and is to come. By the way, is there any decent sermon that doesn't have three points? No. There's not. It's got to have three points or it's incomplete. It's not whole. God's grace manifests itself theologically in justification, sanctification, and glorification. The Old Testament has three patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is a long list, so relax, okay? Just, just take it in. The tabernacle has three parts, the outer, the inner, uh, right? And then the Holy of Holies. Don't forget that the angels cried out to God. How many times did they say holy, holy, holy? Three times. Daniel prayed three times a day. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. Lo and behold, I might be stretching it here, but three times, three times, three. 27 books in the New Testament. The apostle Paul was blinded for three days. Three times he prayed that God would take away the thorn in his flesh. He was stranded on Malta for three months after his shipwreck. And then Jesus, who was born, and wise men came to him, and they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus was 12 years old, and do you know that his parents lost him in the city? And his parents lost him only be, to be uh, uh, separated and recovered from his parents after three days. By the way, there's a... Can you... It's, we don't have time for that. Losing your kid for three days in the city. Sign up for a therapist the rest of your life to fix all that distress that happened. Um, Jesus' public ministry, how long did it last? Three years. He was 30 when it started. He was 33 when he was crucified. Jesus was tempted three times in the desert. There's 12 disciples, but he had three on the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Predicted, uh, Peter predict, was predicted by Jesus to deny him three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. You're catching on. Jesus expressed his love and his grace and restoration to Peter three times to make sure that that was fully healed, and God spoke audibly to Jesus three times. Jesus raised three people from the dead. Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tradition says that Jesus fell three times while he was carrying his cross. Tradition says that. 
One of the three, uh, he was, Jesus was one of three men who hung on that cross. There was a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. It was translated in three different languages. Jesus was placed on the cross the third hour of the day, and at the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., he declared three words. He said, it is finished. And the earth trembled. One gospel says there was utter soul-crushing darkness that fell on the land, fell on the earth. Take a guess how long? Three hours that it fell on the earth. So all these threes, they mean something, right? What does it mean? It doesn't mean that we should go to Hobby Lobby and buy all the threes, hang them up in the house for good luck. Please, if you do that, Do not say which church you're from. Don't mention it. Do not mention it. What does it mean? I have confidence that that pattern of threes means that there was a divine plan. That there was a sovereign, divine, authoritative God who put the plan in place and then saw the plan to completion. Saw the plan in its wholeness. He brought it to pass until Jesus could finally say, the plan is finished. And this pattern of threes was revealing an otherworldly, a divine sovereign being who was in Jesus, who was Jesus, and who was bringing this plan to pass. The death of Jesus was God's plan. It's not historical fiction. It's not even historical nonfiction, in my, in my opinion. Jesus is God's lamb. And he did not die because Satan had a plan. He didn't die because the uh, Pharisees had a plan. He didn't die because the Jews had a plan or because uh, Pilate had a plan or the Romans had a plan. He died because God had a plan. He died on schedule. He died on God's schedule. According to a divinely foreshadowed and foretold plan about being alive with Christ. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is Paul to the Ephesian church. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive. We deserve death and wrath. Jesus absorbs that death and wrath on the cross so that now he represents us as a substitute. And when it's time for life, Jesus says, I've already absorbed the death and I am going to come alive in the, in the grave and I am also going to bring with me those who trust in me, those who rest their confident trust in me. And he's going to make us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our guilt and our shame and our, transition, and our transgressions. Alive with Christ. How did Jesus describe this? What did Jesus say about this plan? In, it, it's fascinating. In Matthew chapter 12, here's what Jesus says about the plan. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Did anybody think it was a whale? Anybody? Well, what does it say? It's a fish. Probably not a whale. Maybe it was. He was in the fish for three days, three nights, and just like Jonah, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So Jesus says, it's been planned all along. You go all the way back to Jonah, who was swallowed by a fish. 
And he was in the depths, in the belly, Sheol, down in the bottom of the sea, in this grave, and I'm going to do the same thing, and it's going to last for three days. The point is then that Jesus, much like Jonah, will undergo a resurrection experience. He will not stay in the grave like Jonah did not stay in the fish. It's all a part of the divine master plan. And while Jonah was rescued from the prospect of death, Jesus alone was rescued from death itself. The world despaired in darkness. And Jesus, who is in the grave after being crucified, he doesn't come alive after one day. He doesn't come alive after two days. But on the third day, the plan is complete the wholeness of the plan starts to come alive. On day three, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is discovered empty. Christ himself is risen. He goes on to call himself the way, the truth. Some of you know this. And the life. He says, I am three things. I'm a lot more, but I want to mention three. I'm the way, the truth, and I am the resurrection life. And in me, death isn't final for you. And today you will be with me in paradise. So we're not worshiping Jesus because he's made us good. Aren't you glad for that? I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And by the way, if all I get from following Jesus is he makes me good, eh, meh, that's all right. No big deal. Not sure about that. But we're worshiping Jesus because he's our resurrected rescuer. That's why people sing and celebrate and continue to worship Jesus. So what does that mean for you? Here's what it means. Jesus' resurrection doesn't help people change from bad to good. That's not the primary reason why Jesus is resurrected, so we get a life change. We were bad people and now we're good people. That's not what he's making happen. Instead, it helps dead people live forever, like Christian funerals where you can grieve, but you don't have to grieve as if you are someone who has no hope. You can say this is only a temporary stop-off, and the real life of eternity is to come. How do we know that? Because my rescuer, redeemer, and hero of my faith is the first fruits. Pastor Jonathan already mentioned. It's, he's already overcome death. He already, in the words of John Mark McMillan, he laid death in his grave. So, God doesn't stop with you at forgiven, right? I mean, what kind of faith is it that says, look, the divine creator who has sent a rescuing hero says, you're forgiven. Am I still dead? Yes, but you're forgiven. Okay. I'm forgiven and dead? Not what I had in mind. Not that spectacular. Might last, you know, my forgiveness might last for the next decade or two or three decades, but Jesus says there's infinitely more. Infinitely more. You're not only forgiven, you are forever alive. You are now alive forever. Would you consider this? I mean, this is what we truly long for, something beyond this earthly existence, right? There is, whether you know it or not, in each human being, there's something that is longed for beyond just having a clear conscience, and one of the best places this is described is by the work of J.R. Tolkien. Recently, an op-ed appears in the New York Times, written by one of our favorites, uh, Timothy Keller, pastor, scholar, theologian. 
And he writes this op-ed in the New York Times, and I want you to see it because I, I'm hoping that, you can, that it resonates with you in terms of we long for more. There's more that we long for. Check this out. Here's, this is from the op-ed. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. Suffering is going to go away. I think i got to slow down. Let's slow this down. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it really happened, if we not crazy, if what we read in our historical faith is true, if it really happened, then ultimately God himself is going to put everything right. He's going to put everything right. All the justice we could ever crave, he's going to make it right. Suffering. This is... I'm ready for suffering to go away. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, ready for it to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer. Timothy Keller has pancreatic cancer. And he writes, pancreatic cancer is going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world. Now, J.R. Tolkien has this essay, and it's, it's, uh, it's called On Fairy Stories, and there are in, indelible human longings. And what he says is that in the human are longings, and only fantasies and Fairy tales and science fiction can really speak to them. By the way, I'd love to know. Any sci- where are my sci-fi people? Where are my sci-fi people? Fairy tale people? Any people? Fairy tale people? Uh, fantasy? Any fantasy folks? Right? Why? Why do we like fantasies and sci-fi and fairy tales? J.R. Tolkien, in this essay, he says it's because all humans... Some identify it more than others. They have a fascination with the idea of escaping time or escaping death or holding communion with other beings. They have a fascination with being able to live long enough to achieve their artistic and their creative dreams or being able to find a love that perfectly heals. We have kids, don't we, who latch on to a fantasy, some animated fantasy, and can never get them off it. And now you have adult kids who've never gotten off the animated fantasy world. Why is that? Tolkien says that why do we have these longings? And as a Christian, he thinks the reason is that we were not originally created to die. In the garden, when God created us, we weren't created to die. We all deep down kind of know that this is the way life ought to be. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ happens, then all those things are literally going to come true for us. That's what we hope in. That's what we look to. It's not escapism. It's hope in the life to come. Because while we deserve death and wrath for our failures and flaws, self-righteousness and pride, what happens? There's a great reversal. God doesn't just make us good. He makes us come alive. For how long? To live in eternity forever. That is what Easter is about.
That's why when we celebrate Easter, it's a real heartfelt celebration. Let's pray together. Father, stir us to respond today. We pray that you'd bring our apathetic, sometimes just distracted, confused, disoriented selves. Would you somehow, could you somehow bring life to that inner body? And we pray today, God, that you would stir up our hope and that you would stir up our trust, that you would stir up uh, an otherworldly joy that comes by your plan. We pray in Jesus' strong name, amen.